The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Nice to see everybody tonight. I want to thank Wynne and Shelley and Gabe for leading the program last week. They're not here tonight, but I heard it was a, a good session, a lot of interesting conversation around sloth and torpor and the other hindrances. So tonight we'll have smaller groups a little bit later. And uh, of course, anything that you've been learning is always appropriate to bring up in the small groups. But uh, in particular, you know, to be interested in the experience of sloth and torpor and restlessness. And next, next week we'll spend most of our time talking about doubt, which we could, you know, spend a lot of time. It's such a common and tricky hindrance because it uh, looks like we're wisely considering like, oh, what should I do? Or what is right here? But because we're thinking about it, we're always looking to resolve the doubt in a place where we can't resolve doubt. We don't really resolve doubt on the level of thinking about anything. Should I get married to this person? Or should I take this job? Or should I come to Buddhist studies on Monday night or do this other thing? Should I get more involved in the issues, the injustices around me, or should I sort of really work on my spiritual practice? Or are they the same thing? So you can see how thinking about it, it always seems like I'm, this is what thinking does. It seems like we're getting to the truth. But we never really get to the truth. I mean, we may tell ourselves that we figured something out, but then we have to keep thinking about why what we chose is the right answer. We've got to keep thinking like, oh yeah, that, I was right. I'm right to think this about that. So it never ends. So even if it, you, it appears in our mind that we don't have doubt, it's still there. We're just a little ahead of the curve in terms of, you know, beating back the doubt, right? I bet it will catch up. Are you sure? (laughs) (laughs) But that's next week. But just to sort of set up the homework to study how doubt moves in our minds and to, of course, recognize, I mean, the limitations of language, of course, there's a very wholesome kind of what we might call being open or not taking things um, lightly, but really keeping an open mind. Well, I'm not sure. I'm still considering this. So being in that place of suspended belief or don't know mind, that's not doubt as a hindrance. I'd call that wisdom, right? like knowing that the mind's not certain about something. I don't know what I'm going to do with this thing in my life, but I'm really showing up and uh, assuming that a choice will be made when it needs to be made. But now, in this moment, I know that I don't know. I mean, I have thoughts about it. I've collected some data. You know, I've talked to some people. I have some thought, but I don't really know what I'm going to do. 
the doubt we're talking about is the actual spinning mental proliferation, which then dominates the mind to the degree that the mind, attention, awareness, isn't really connecting with the experience of the mind and body, with the present moment in a real way, in a useful way. So that's next week, which is also the last week of the class, in case you're wondering. And we have a couple weeks off, and then the uh, three refuges begin, is it the second, probably the second Monday, it's not Labor Day, so it's the Monday after Labor Day, the 11th. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, thanks Mary. So um, you can sign up for that now. I think Gabe has it all set up if you want to sign up online for that. So tonight I want to talk a little bit about restlessness, but maybe I'll read from Ajahn Brahm. No one read last week from Ajahn Brahm's article that I sent to everybody on the email list. Uh, He has a nice short article, The Five Hindrances, Ajahn Brahmavamsa, or mostly he's called Ajahn Brahm. He's one of the better known Buddhist monks, a Westerner. He's the abbot of a monastery near Perth, Australia. And um, so he has a short article that you got a link for a couple of weeks back. Let me just read what he wrote, both about sloth and torpor and also about restlessness. Sloth and torpor. And just remember, both the sloth and torpor and the restlessness, as the Buddha describes it, point to both a physical and a mental heaviness with the sloth and torpor. And same with the restlessness, uh, both a mental and physical uneasiness, restlessness, disturbedness. So about sloth and torpor, he says it refers to the heaviness of body and dullness of mind which drag one down into a disabling inertia and thick depression. The Buddha compared it to being imprisoned in a cramped, dark cell, unable to move freely in the bright sunshine outside. In meditation, it causes weak and intermittent mindfulness which can even lead to falling asleep in meditation without even realizing it. Anybody have that happen to them? (laughs) I mean, not in the moment, of course, but realizing. Maybe you notice the pool of drool. That's a telltale sign. Or that you're sort of snapping back up when you realize that you've been sort of in, like there's just enough tension in the body to keep it from completely collapsing. He goes on and he writes, Sloth and torpor is overcome by rousing energy. Right? Again, like I said in the guided set, it matters what we pay attention to. So in terms of feeding sleepiness, it's like thinking we're being skillful, we pay attention to the aspects of experience that actually reinforce the idea I'm sleepy. Sometimes when there's enough balance enough clarity, enough momentum and mindful awareness, we can really look at the heaviness of mind, the heaviness of the eyes even, or whatever. You know, there's different experiences. It's interesting, like when you're falling asleep to practice, but sometimes the mindfulness can keep you awake, but that's okay, because eventually it won't, (laughs) you know. But depending on what you pay attention to and how you pay attention to it, It can either be rousing energy, 
or causing the mind to fall asleep. And this is for each of us to learn on our own. Energy is always available, Ajahn Brahm writes, but few know how to turn on the switch, as it were. Setting a goal, a reasonable goal, is a wise and effective way to generate energy, as is deliberately developing interest in the task at hand. And this really goes to the principle, I think I mentioned it a couple of weeks ago. We think we need energy to make effort, but when you check it out in your own experience, you see it's the other way around. Energy arises when the mind is applied or when the mind makes effort. So if you want energy, find something you can make effort in. Find something that the mind that is skillful for the mind to do, like in the case of meditation. Something simple like, what can the mind connect with with real interest? Not sort of grudging interest, but actual interest, curiosity, really and enough interest to sustain the attention. And that effort to connect and to know and to discern, comprehend that, experience of the body, experience of the mind that's unfolding in the present moment, that effort is energizing. You'll see the mind getting bright. One of the things that you'll notice when there's a lot of um, momentum in your practice, like when you're on a retreat and things are pretty calm and settled in the mind, that you can have a very bright mind, really in balance, really clear But then if that mind gets distracted, like some old thinking pattern, something you've thought a lot before, you know, something you think an automatic pilot, basically. So one of those old tapes comes online. You'll go from being a mind that's really nicely in balance, seems really bright and calm and clear, to just falling asleep. And the reason is that the support that kept enough energy in the mind with all that tranquility, right, all that calm, was that the mind was vividly interested in the present moment, in the dynamic, the aliveness of things coming and going, whatever it was that the mind was observing in the present moment. But then when the mind gets seduced or for whatever reason pulled into some old tape, some old thinking pattern, well, because it's on automatic pilot, worrying about something it's worried about a hundred times before, or thinking through something it's thought through, there's no effort. It's doing something on automatic pilot, and because there's no effort, the mind is just spinning in a way, like a well-greased way of spinning. It loses all the energy. So all there is is tranquility in the mind, because you've been on retreat, or you're having a good set. There's a lot of calm and tranquility, but all of a sudden, in a matter of a few seconds, the mind can go from feeling, appearing to be vividly present, really bright, really interested, really connecting, to being unconscious or in some trance-like state. And it's simply because the mind stopped making effort. Now, here, remember, effort here in this more balanced place in practice, it's a subtle kind of effort. It's not a muscular, you know, like I'm trying to pay attention. It's like a very natural curiosity, like the heart, the mind, wanting to connect, like a wholesome desire 
to connect because it's interested. When you're playing or when a child is playing, do they make effort to pay attention? No, when we're playing a game, paying attention is like the easiest thing in the world. When you're playing ping pong, assuming you like it, you know, or watching Game of Thrones or, <laughs> you know, the attention goes, it's just like, but it's still energizing because the mind is, in a sense, working, right? It's making the effort to follow. Like if, it's, if you're paying attention to a story, then it's making the effort to comprehend the story moment by moment by moment as each bit of information comes in, right? This is, you see this. I, I, I taught elementary school for a while and I was also a special ed teacher teaching reading, you know, to children that was, were having a hard time learning to read. And uh, when there's enough success, the effort to comprehend, to sort of comprehend as they're going through the story is really energizing. But it, when there's just a less than enough success, right, then the frustration and the doubt and the other unwholesome qualities overwhelm the energy, the interest, the enthusiasm, the faith, the confidence. And there's a real tipping point, just like there is in our own mind. So when you're feeling sleepy, uh, what could the mind, what is the mind willing to connect with? What is the mind willing to be interested in? It might actually, in some moments, not always, be the experience of sleepiness itself. More often, it will be something else. But you have to, that question, what is the mind willing to connect to? What is the mind willing to sustain with? What is it that's available in the present moment? that the mind can know. Now, the idea might arise in the mind, there's nothing in the present moment. So we have to be skillful at realizing that's just a thought. I mean, there's a saying in, Buddhist, in sort of the Buddhist world, if you're bored, you're not paying attention. That's a, that's a better bumper sticker than the one you see like, uh, if you're not enraged, you're not paying attention, or something like that. Right? It should be, you know, if you're complacent, if you're bored, if you think you don't need to really show up in life, you're not paying attention. Because the world is asking, right, the, the actual dynamic of the present moment, even so-called boring moments, are really amazing in surprising ways. And we know this. Like We could be sitting on a curb somewhere in an urban setting, you know, where we just have an aversive, like, oh, this is just a city. But all of a sudden our attention gets drawn to just, you know, a little anthill between two pieces of concrete, you know, with maybe a little crabgrass next to it. And we just open our heart to something so simple, the texture of the concrete, the activity of the ants, the greenness of the grass, this whole little world right there, right? It's so amazing, something as simple as that. Everything is like that. The only 
thing that makes things boring is the thought, the fixed idea or the identification with the thought, this is boring, or the thought, I know this. Because the mind thinks, is attached to the idea, I know this, then it's compelled to not pay attention because that would be an affront to the fixed idea that I know this. Like, why are you paying attention, idiot? You know this. Do something else with attention. And that's a, you know, that's a chronic thought in our mind that we know. It's a real uh, useful definition of delusion to think we know, the mind that thinks it knows. Because that mind justifies being disconnected, not present. So let me read what uh, Ajahn Brahm says about, he has more there about, um, well, let me just read this one thing because it's really interesting about sloth and torpor. The mind has two main functions, doing and knowing. The way of meditation is to calm the doing to to complete tranquility while maintaining the knowing. He goes on to describe why we get confused in practice where we quiet the doing, but we also quiet the knowing. We're not actually connecting with the presence, the vividness, the aliveness, the amazingness of the present moment. We're connecting with the idea, I know this, or it isn't important. Right? And that kind of stops the mind cold. The idea and the attachment to the idea, I know this, then the, then the attention doesn't know what to do, so it just does something on automatic pilot, which is boring, which supports the deepening of the sleepiness, the dullness of mind. And here's what uh, Ajahn Brahm writes about restlessness. Restlessness refers to a mind which is like a monkey. He uses that example. It comes from the suttas. But really, you could see it in any animal. I mean, I used to observe, not the cat we have now, although the same was it's probably true. But I remember, especially as the other cat we had, as it got older, you know, it just had these patterns. It didn't, you know, as it got older, it, it wouldn't go outside as much. When and I just let the cat pretty much go outside when it wants. But it, would, it had these routines. It would go up to the window. It would check its bowl. It would find something to scratch. You know, and then it would do it again. And it would be that pattern of thinking that this is going to be it for me. This is going to be satisfying. But no, it isn't. So I'll do that. And that's not. And we do this. This is like our life. I mean, this is one of the real difficult side effects of training your mind to be more in the present moment. I noticed this just having, even though I was teaching the retreat at IMS these last 10 days, um, you know, it just supports the momentum of my own practice. So just being at home today and uh, being alone and having a lot to do and not wanting to do it, you know, I just noticed it was like always there was one thing to do. And then and it was like nothing was really doing it. And same with food, like because I didn't have all the food I wanted, then being home, it's like I have options, like the fridge is right there, nobody's watching, tea's right there, the internet's right there, you know, catch up on the news. And just to see that 
the hope that this will be interesting, this will be fulfilling or satisfying in some way. Very soon it's clear it's not. And then this, and then this, and then this. Always moving. The Buddha said something, and this has been really central to some styles of meditation practice, that movement masks dukkha or stress. Movement masks stress or dukkha. So you see this both physically in your body, just to be attention. And like I said, there's a famous Sayadaw in Burma who's dead now, but the whole lineage was based on observing whenever your body wanted to move and then looking at the dukkha that the mind was trying to get away from, the uneasiness. So it would be just interesting like this week to notice when there's movement. Because you know it's like when there's a strong and wholesome quality of tranquility, the mind and the body is willing just to be there. Like the mind isn't restlessly looking for something to entertain it or something to worry about. It's content just to be. And that isn't like a a dull, it's like, have you had that? It's really a useful experience to recognize that contentment, but it's not because the mind is dull, it's because everything is in a sense equally interesting. Just being is interesting. The object is less relevant than the quality of knowing, the attitude, the wholesomeness of the attitude. And so even if all the mind is knowing, is that the mind is knowing? Like that might be the most neutral of objects to know, like there's knowing. But even that is amazing, like worthy of attention. Oh, the mind knowing there's knowing here or like we i suggested we do um in the guided meditation like the sound of silence or I, i should have also mentioned like the whole body too not the particular unique sensations as you're feeling aware of the body but the body is one sort of vibration it's just like the sound the auditory the background auditory experience has sort of a there's a certain neutrality or all things coming together. So it's not about picking out the distinct sounds of a particular car, a particular bird, or particular movement in the room. It's more the wholeness of the auditory experience or the wholeness of the tactile experience or even the visual experience, right? I could be here sort of noticing the blueness of Rob's shirt and the movement over here. But there's a way of resting in the completeness, the non-differentiation of each of the sense gates, right? And noticing the neutrality, but but being interested in that because it's tranquilizing in a way. It's like that neutrality itself really is something useful for learning how to manage uh, restlessness. In the same way that when our mind is hyper-interested in diversification, in the difference, in the comparing, in the better than and worse than, 
that's always agitating, isn't it? You know, you know, like even if we're just trying to figure out, do I belong in this room? Do I fit? Am I good enough? Am I better than? That question in our mind is agitating. Or do I like the shirt that Corey's wearing? You know, that's an having to know the answer to the question the mind asks is agitating. I mean, not necessarily in a big way, could be quite subtle. But when we're feeling the body or the tactile experience as a whole, or seeing the visual experience as a whole, or the auditory experience as a whole, or even the activity of the thinking mind, the cognition, you know, the activity of mind as a whole dance, not the particular content of this thought or this emotion, but just that sort of space of mind that has activity dancing in it. But not concerned about any of the particulars of the activity, but more interested in the space of mind. Right? So the feeling of mind as sensation, the visual experience of mind as sight, the auditory sense of the mind as sound, whatever that is, the neutrality of that is very calming. Because it undermines that part of the mind that thinks it has to do something, like figure something out in a, that sort of comparing way or who I am, solve a problem, past and future. And so one of the real causes for restlessness is when something comes up in the thinking mind that is very compelling, like we really do feel we have to address. So one of the long-term supports for dealing with restlessness is not to do anything wrong, (laughs) right? Because when you think about the things that arise that prevent the mind from just sort of resting in the wholeness of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and thinking, right? the unity of the present moment and the beautiful calm that comes from noticing this present moment in a non-differentiated way, not diversifying it or breaking it up, is, I can't believe I said that. You know, I can't believe I did that or somebody else did something. So it's this, uh, you know, in terms of remorse. So one of the reasons, like just especially in terms of developing deeper concentration meditation, which can be so healing on a lot of levels and really allow us to be a human being and re-enter the difficult world we inhabit, you know, to be able to, sit for an hour, sit for 30 minutes and touch a deeper state. One of the things that will stop our samadhi practice in its tracks is if we're living a life where we're doing things that are bad because they haunt us when we sit, right? The reason that people who are acting out or are violent or, or cheating people, stealing, you know, basically doing unethical things. The, one of the reasons they're restless or seem to get a lot done <laughs> is because 
to sort of sit with what it feels like to be living the life they're living is intolerable. So, you know, alcohol, drugs, restless behavior, entertainments, or doing more bad stuff is what people tend to do once they go down that road. Because it's hard to face. It's like a big, we- uh, big wave looming over us, which is what it, that wave is what it feels like in my heart to be making the choices that I've been making. So we keep running because we don't want to feel what we feel. So if you find it hard to get to the cushion, if you find, like, let's say you've had a good practice, but you just can't get to the cushion. I mean, there could be a number of reasons, but one thing to look at is just ask yourself, honey, is there something I don't want to face or feel? Because choosing to spend my life running away from a feeling I'm already feeling, a bit unwilling to be conscious, mindfully aware that I'm feeling it, is real insanity. I mean, it's really stressful to choose that path. And then the question would be, well, what do I need to be willing to turn and face this, and to sit with this, and to let this move, and to let this be what it is? So this is something like, uh, in terms of your own experience of restlessness that you might even share in the small group tonight, you know, just to be interested what's in the way, what dukkha, what monster, what thing from the past seems to be in the way of just being, just settling. And this is a question, you know, when you have the EBGBs in a sit, I mean, we see this more at home when we're, Here at the center, sitting with other people, our pride kind of keeps us in the room or on the cushion or on the chair. But when we're home and no one's there, you know, and something comes up, it'd be very interesting to look at what what justifies you leaving the sit before you had determined to leave the sit. What feeling, what idea, what memory, what hope, Oh, now I have to do this. Well, what was there right before that? You know, maybe some really painful thought, like, whatever it is, I'm not good at this. But it's something that the mind assumes, mostly unconsciously, that it can't actually see or feel, that it would be dangerous to see or feel. So a lot of the restlessness and worry, and they get put together actually in the tradition, as I mentioned. Uh, great words, I'm forgetting the Pali. Udacha and Kukucha, restlessness and worry, or sometimes flurry, right? This is from um, Ayakema, a German Buddhist nun woman. Worry besets most people and makes the mind tumultuous. It takes one away from the moment, which is the only one in which we can live. Moments spent in worrying are all lost moments. Unless we live in each moment, we are missing life. When we think about the past and worry about the future, 
We aren't living. We are remembering and projecting. That's not living. Life cannot be thought about. It has to be experienced. That's the only way life can ever mean anything. And experiencing can only happen in each moment. This is one of the skills that meditation teaches us. To live in the moment, which means to live at all. It should really break our hearts when we see the, uh, the real addiction we have to media these days in particular. And it's not like connecting with other people or connecting with the wider world is bad. It's, it's really important. But what's in a so, so-called bad or unskillful is this seeming dependence the mind has on needing to know now if someone sent a text or what's happening in the world or what is the next episode of the thing we're watching or the book we're reading or because it it basically the world of thought the world of construction constructed meaning which is all of media all of conversation and the world of the present moment and I think it's useful to distinguish, like it's simplistic, but to make that in a simple choice between the world, what we in this practice call dharma or dhamma, the way it is, which is things as they are not conceptual, but things in and of themselves, and everything else. The world of what the mind creates or constructs. And this world of thought will always be agitating. Even Dharma, thinking about the practice, really inspiring thoughts about the practice, are slightly agitating, right? I really want to fulfill what the Buddha is pointing to. You know, I really want to understand what the Buddha understood or my teachers understand. I want that unshakable release of the heart. So even when we're really inspired by the study that we do, there's some agitation there. And it's only resolved when the mind connects. And when the mind is able, learns how to connect fully, 100%, without anything left out, then this world disappears. And a new world arises, which is the world free of any constructed problem. And all our problems are constructed. Hold that as a possibility that all problems are constructed, constructions of the thinking mind that keep it simple. And so when the heart has been trained to open completely, it's not even that thinking ceases. It's not about thinking ceasing. It's about, it's really more about a refuge, what we'll be talking about deepening our understanding about in the fall when we look at the refuges. 
what is this freedom that we're hopefully gradually having confidence in, intuiting and having confidence in. So for tonight's uh, small groups, just to unpack your own understanding of sloth and torpor, restlessness and remorse, or restlessness and worry, two aspects of delusion, right? So the delusion with sleepiness now remember, this is not the sleepiness of having lived a good day and you're exhausted. You put, it, put your heart into it, you know, you leaned in, you did what you had to do, and now you're tired. That's not the, re- the sleepiness, dullness we're talking about. Right? It's the mind using dullness because it doesn't want to connect. It mistrusts being in the vivid flow of things coming and going. So restlessness and remorse and sleepiness, heaviness of mind and body, those are expressions of delusion, which is not being connected or thinking that we know. right? Not being connected to the aliveness, the reality of things coming and going and being known, which is the non-conceptual reality. Not the thought, things are coming and going and being known, but the direct experiencing of experiences coming and going and being known. Okay? So uh, just a reminder about small groups because it's really important that these small groups remain as practice. So there's, you know, these instructions are, have been crafted over years of us doing it, not just here at Common Ground, but just in the wider, not even just in the Buddhist circles about how small groups work best. So sit close, make sure you know each other's names, so just have that moment, maybe decide who's going to go first, and then just go clockwise from there. If you're out of earshot of this bell, then somebody's timing. And remember that everybody gets their two and a half to three minutes. And even if it's silence, it's really okay for there to be silence when it's your time. You run out of something to say, just continue reflecting in silence, The other people in your group will help hold that silence with great ease and relaxation. It's really okay to three human beings to be sitting together, all three reflecting, the two listening or just reflecting on what you've said thus far and what that means in their own mind. You're just reflecting about the theme of restlessness and sloth and torpor. When your time's up, you know, people can thank you for your sharing or you can thank them for listening. And then the next person begins, like that. So there's really keep it, and just speak from your own practice, no cross-talk. At the end, with the five minutes or so that is open discussion, then you know you can say, you know, when you said that, it reminded me of what's going on in my own life. And then you can share in that way. But when they're speaking, you're not asking questions, you're not nodding, you're just in that receptive mode. It really helps just to be present with your own body. It actually supports listening. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.